Let's take our Bibles and open them to our study of the book of Ephesians. As we begin, I'll just ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from you. You so richly bless us with everything that we need for life and for godliness. We have it all. And you allow us to understand what your word says because you've given us your spirit to dwell within us, to help illumine our minds and our hearts. And so, Lord, tonight as we think about the truths before us, may they impact us, may they impact our thinking and impact our lives and our understanding of all that we have in Christ Jesus. So that you might be glorified in us, through us, and receive all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about the book of Ephesians, obviously, recently, and reading through it recently, and realizing we don't understand the book of Ephesians like we ought to understand the book of Ephesians. There is a theme that runs through this entire book that I don't think impacts us as we ought to be impacted by it, and that is the theme of unity. Because of our modern age and the way in which we live and where we live and the idea of religion during our times, we don't understand, I don't think, what the Ephesians were going through and what the Ephesians were dealing with as Gentile Christians in light of the reality of what was in their history before them when it came to the Jewish nation. Of course, the Jews always believed that they were the people of God, the only people of God. And of course, through the Old Testament, we see that being played out as God drew out his people and brought them into the promised land. And in the process, took out other nations, and they were Gentile nations, in which he was separating his people out. And so the Jews got this idea in their own hearts and minds that they were, in fact, the only people of God, and no one else belonged to God. And so they had, in one sense, an angst toward anybody else who who might have had any kind of claim towards Jehovah God. And when the gospel came, obviously, the people knew God in, in the Old Testament by grace and through faith, as we see Abraham believed God. And, and in the New Testament, Jesus Christ comes and, of course, begins to preach through John the Baptist and others and himself the gospel, the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ, to which all who believed upon him would have eternal life and the Jews still believing that they were the only ones who could know God and the Gentiles could not know God. And of course, Paul, being a missionary to the Gentiles, wanted the Gentiles to understand that they were now unified. That there is one family of God. And in chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, and he uses those words very pointedly, the so-called circumcision, because obviously he's talking about that which was performed by hands. It was a work of man, 
yes, commanded by God and yet performed by man as a religious reality, is that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This disunity was there because Israel was being called by God. They were given the ordinances of God. They were given uh, the reality of being the people of God. They had a quote-unquote hope, and you were one who didn't know any of that. You were outside of that, and therefore you were separate from Christ. You were separate from any kind of relationship with God. But now, verse 13, you are in Christ Jesus. You who were formerly far off have been brought near to by the blood of Christ. Well, the entire theme through this entire book, as we will see as we go on over and over again, week after week, is this reality of unity, this reality of coming together, this reality of being one in Jesus Christ. Several weeks ago, when we began to look at all of these realities, I entitled our evening message with the words, Praying for Growth. Praying for Growth, because the Apostle Paul had, had these believers in mind in his prayer for them as he's praying that they would grow in their understanding of all that they have in Christ, this unity that they have with Christ, with the purpose that God would would illumine their minds. He's praying to God that God would illumine their minds to understand all that they had been given by God through Him saving them. And then by understanding their salvation and what God has done for them would be helpful and needed if they were going to live out the calling with which they had been called, which is exactly what he exhorts them to do in chapter 4. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he says, with all humility, right? Humility is that basic Christian virtue in order to build unity. Humility with gentleness, showing tolerance for one another in love. An understanding of our salvation, an understanding of what God has done for us is both helpful and needed if we are going to live as God has called us to live. The Apostle Paul has taken us all the way to the heights of God's majestic glory and blessing all that we have had granted to us by God that we saw in chapter 1, so that when we come to chapter 2, we can see the massive contrast between who we were before Christ, what we are now. And in doing so, Paul summarizes in a a kind of way all of chapter 1 in three statements. Three statements, and they're encapsulated for us in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. And then he concludes it with why God did it in verse 7. I was thinking about this in reference to the reality of evil in our world, and why would God allow evil to even happen in our world? That is a, a struggle for many to think through. In fact, many apologists and many theologians throughout the years have had 
very difficult times even trying to answer that question, although it, if we just look at it from a biblical perspective, isn't really all that difficult to understand. And I think verse 7 gives us a clue into the answer to that question, as well as an answer to why God saved us. And so this is where I want us to focus our time tonight. I want us to focus our time on these three statements and then the summary as to why God did it. Notice what Paul says to summarize our salvation. I'll begin a little farther back, back in verse 4, because of the contrast that Paul makes, right? But, be, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and then he puts that parenthetical statement, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. There in verses 5 and 6 are the three encapsulated statements. We were made alive together with Christ, that word alive is used two times, once here and once in Colossians 2 and verse 13. We were raised up together with Christ. Raised up is used three times by the Apostle Paul, here and then in Colossians 2 verse 12 and Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. And we were seated together with Christ. That word, seated, is used two times here, and you see it again in Luke chapter 22 and verse 55. These are very profound words. I was thinking today, have you ever made up a word? Have you ever made up a word that has become a word that people use? I, I've made up words. I haven't made up words that other people use, but I have made up words by accident, even while preaching. My wife and children love to joke about that. Of course, they're not children anymore, but they like to joke about it because for several weeks when I was preaching years ago in Ohio, I said the word trespasses. Trespasses. I was combining transgressions and trespasses. And I... I preached a message and bore my heart out in preaching, and I came down from the pulpit, and my wife said, you use this word, trespasses. I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> she said, you did. I said, I didn't. And the next week, I was preaching the next part, as you could well imagine, and of course, I said the word again, not knowing I was saying the word, and I came down from the pulpit, and I stood next to her, and she said, you used that word again. I said, I did not. <laughs> I was doing exactly what humility doesn't do. I was exercising pride and defending myself. I said, I didn't do that. The next week I went up to the pulpit and began part three of whatever it was. And I said the word trespasses and I heard it in my mind. And I said, I, I don't mean that. I mean, I claim that. So I've made up a word. And it's, it's not always fun to do that. Well, Paul was so amazed at what God had done 
that he took three words to describe what happened with Christ after his resurrection. All that took place in the life of Christ, made alive, raised up, seated. And he added a prefix to all those words in order to help us understand the magnitude of what God has done with us in salvation. These aren't normal words. The first two words are used exclusively by the Apostle Paul. They have to deal with things that that hadn't happened in history before. The resurrection and someone being made alive and ascending. That hadn't happened before. They're used by Paul only. The last one is used in one other place. I told you in Luke chapter 22, verse 55. Because it was a word used in culture of the day to describe just a group sitting together. Someone in the same proximity as others. But the other two were words manufactured by Paul. Paul made them up because there was no word that could adequately describe what God has done for us. And I think when we ponder them, when we think about them, they describe to us what has happened with us as a result of our union with Christ through God saving us. Right? Our union with Christ drives everything of our union and our unity with one another. And Paul wants us to understand all that we have in our union with Christ so that we might be unified with one another. I don't know if we often think of our salvation in those terms. The reality of our unification as a union with Christ. We don't often think of it that way, but the Bible describes it that way in considerable amount of places, mostly in the Apostle Paul's writings. So if we don't think of it that way, we ought to. We ought to think of it as an actual and vital union with Jesus Christ, if not for the simple fact that Jesus often spoke of it that way. That we were unified with Him. For example, over in John chapter 4, we see Jesus using this reality of unification with him as he speaks to a woman who is not a Jew. She's a half-breed Jew. She is a intermixed Jew, if you will. She's a Samaritan. And Jesus in John chapter 4 goes to a woman beginning in verse 7. He's on a journey. He finds a parcel of ground in Samaria called Sychar. That's verse 5. Near Jacob's well. <clears throat> and so Jesus is wearied from his journey. He's sitting there by the well. It's about the sixth hour. There comes a woman from Samaria to draw water. And Jesus says, give me a drink. Now the disciples, of course, gone into the town to buy food. They didn't no, Jesus was talking to this woman. The Samaritan woman says to him in verse 9, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan and a woman? Not only would Jews not speak with Samaritans, but they wouldn't speak certainly with a woman because Jews had no dealings with them. 
that disunity was always on their mind. Disunity was always there because there was no sense in which anyone else was part of the group. And Jesus answers and says to her, if you knew the gift of God, what's he talking about? Himself. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, you would have this unity with him. And she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw. And the well's deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob. She's still thinking on an earthly level. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of the water of this will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So there's this metaphor that Jesus is kind of using that is water and the spring of water and thirst and never thirsting, and Jesus is showing her this reality of unification with him is a life-giving reality. It's a joining together. Go over to John 6. John 6. Jesus is, of course, dealing with the crowds of the people. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He walks on the water. The people want more the next day. They find him over in Capernaum. They ask Jesus in verse 25, how did you get here? Jesus answers and truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? We, we want to do what we can. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Which is kind of an ironic reality since he's the one who made bread for them the morning, the day before. Our fathers ate men in the wilderness. It's written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to this world. They said, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You come to me, you will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Once again, another life metaphor using bread and food and being satisfied with the reality of being unified with Jesus Christ. And of course, Jesus gets very direct over in chapter 15 of John's Gospel. When he says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes so that it might bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, speaking to the disciples. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. 
So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So all of these metaphors, if you will, all of these nature ideas, the water, the bread, the vine, all of these things are directing people to this union with Christ. We are intimately linked with Christ so that what happens with Christ happens with us. This is the reality of the Christian faith. How we are received in the world and how we are rejected in the world are linked with our union with Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, through that glorious first 13 or 14 verses of chapter 1, you get the idea of this union with Christ with seeing how it's played out in the words of the Apostle Paul as oftentimes he says in Him and through Him and by Him and with Him. He uses that over and over and over again. So the idea of unity and union with Christ, this vital connection with Christ, this actual real vital connection with Jesus Christ is seen over and over and over again. So when you come to chapter 2, What is Paul saying when he says we were made alive, we were raised up, and we were seated with Him? What does Paul mean when he says that? In other words, in what sense have we been made alive? In what sense have we been raised up? In what sense have we been seated with Christ? What does Paul mean? What do I mean when I say that? When I ask us to think about that? Well, I mean that our union with Christ is our technical position before God as a result of the work of Christ on our behalf. That's the reality. It's our position before God as a result of the work of Christ on our behalf. I think we can see this as we turn back to Romans chapter 5. Over to Romans chapter 5, we get a glimpse of this unity, this unification with Christ. As Paul writes to the believers from Rome, Beginning in verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. He's not saying that death spread to all men in the reality that when you sin, therefore death is upon you. No, he's saying the reason you die is because you were there when death came in through sin. Sin was in the world, but it wasn't imputed to man where there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Moses is the one who gave the law, and yet the principle of death was still there. So sin, the principle of sin was still there. Even if he didn't sin in the likeness of the offense of Adam, 
who was a type of him who was to come. The free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. For the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. On the one hand, judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. So if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. And the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so even through the obedience of the one, many were made righteous, or will be made righteous. Why the law? The law came in so the transgressions would increase, not so that sin would, would be increasing, but the reality that you would see it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So as sin reigned in death, even so grace reigned through righteousness, so eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You get the idea there from the Apostle Paul that unification is the, is the issue. We were unified with Adam, and now in Christ we're unified with Him. Before our salvation, we were with Adam. Now we are in Christ. You say, well, what is Paul saying? He's saying that God had established Adam as the representative. He had established Adam as the federal head of the human race. The theologians like to call the federal headship uh, doctrine. He was standing for us, if you will, in the garden. He was the representative of humanity so that whatever he did, we did in Adam. We were there. We were with Adam. And so when he fell into sin, so did we. And as a result of that, we all died. So the fact that we all die is proof that God considered all of us in Adam when he sinned. But Jesus did not fall. He did not sin. Not only was that a demonstration of his righteousness, but also his dying for all those who would believe upon him and therefore be united with Him was a demonstration and a reality of our unification in Him so that those who are judged as sinners because of sin in Adam might now, by faith, be judged righteous because of Christ's righteousness. So This is why it says, because Jesus is justified, God was satisfied with Christ, we who believe are justified. He is our federal head. And so what has happened with Him happens with us. Whatever God has accomplished with Christ has been accomplished with us. This is what is on the mind of the Apostle Paul as he describes what has happened with the Ephesian believers by means of Christ. He says first, 
by way of chronology and practicality, we were made alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were considered by Adam's federal headship to be dead in our sinfulness, God, by His grace, made us alive together with Christ. Paul has said, you were dead, but now you have been made alive. Why? Because of your union with Christ. Again, not to be morbid in some kind of way, but a dead person is absolutely unconscious to all that is around them. Dead people don't hear the physical world. They are completely inactive and in an inactive sense of decay. Or in an active sense of decay, I should say. And that certainly speaks to their physical reality. Dead people are physically unable to react to the physical world. It's the same that is true in a spiritual reality. As those who were dead, as Paul says, we were dead, we were unconscious to spiritual things, unable to respond to spiritual things un by ourselves, unresponsive to God on our own, by our own power, by our own volition, by our own desires, unable to serve God, and unwilling to serve God because it was impossible for us to do living things, we were decaying morally every day. But God made us alive with Christ. God made us willing to serve Him. It was God who made us spiritually responsive to Him. It was God who stopped the moral decay and God who changed our moral decay to a life and a growth of practical righteousness. It was God who did that. In other words, there is no greater a change than to go from dead to living. This is the greatest change that could ever happen. If, if, if that transformation is not visible, then it is not true. If there is no visible change in a person who claims to be changed, then it is not true. The person is not unified with Christ, and therefore they are not a Christian. I think the late Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well. I think it's helpful for us to hear it. He says this, quote, The difference between the sinner and the Christian, the difference between the unbeliever and the believer, is not that the believer has certain faculties which the other man does not have. No. What happens is that this new disposition given to the Christian directs his faculties in an entirely different way. In other words, he is not given a new brain. He is not given a new intelligence or anything else. He has always had these. They are his servants. They are his instruments. What is new is a new disposition. He has turned in a different direction. 
There is a new power working in him and guiding his faculties. This is the thing that makes the man a Christian. Unquote. God has made us alive. He has given us a new disposition. How did that change happen? It happened by union with Christ. And so Paul says we have been made alive with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. When Christ rose from the dead, we rose from the dead in the heart and purposes and plan of God. And in time, God made that happen so that we believed upon Christ. So first thing is we've been made alive with Christ. Secondly, he says, verse 6, and raised us up with Him. And raised us up with Him. Now, it is interesting because the first thing on our minds, if I were to ask you, what is Paul talking about here? The impression that we get on our minds is of the resurrection. That he raised us up with Christ. Those words seem to indicate a resurrection. And that's the normal way for us to think. But actually what Paul is referring to is not the resurrection. What Paul is referring to is the ascension. Paul has already spoken to the resurrection by saying he made us alive. He quickened us to life. That would be saying it twice, saying it again, that God raised us from the dead and God raised us up from the dead. That makes no sense. What Paul is talking about is not the resurrection. He has already said that. God made us alive. When Christ was made alive, we were made alive. That happened at Christ's resurrection. And so what is being referred to here is the ascension of Christ. In other words, having been raised from our dead condition with Christ, when Christ ascended to heaven, we too were taken with Him to the heavenly places in the heart in mind of God. You say, how? How were we? In what way were we? Obviously, we sit here in our physical bodies. We are not in heaven. How and in what way were we there? Well, we were there and we are there in that we have been given a new environment. This is our new home. Heaven is our new home with Christ. Being raised from the dead gave us new life. Being taken with Christ to the heavenly places gives us a new environment. And it's simply to say that this world is no longer our home. This is no longer our environment, our place. We are citizens of heaven. That which is here in this temporal place is not for us. This is not our home. There is no longer a longing for here. There shouldn't be a longing for this place. Our new longing is for the heavenly places, the things of heaven. Oh, certainly where we once live and where we once spoke and loved was here 
in the world's ways. But now we live and we speak and we love in the heavenly ways. Why? Because this world is not our home. And so as a Christian, we long to be with Christ. This is our hope. This is our desire. This is who we are. This is why we live. This is what we long for. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, those wonderful words for how we are to live. If you have been raised up with Christ, chapter 3, verse 1, if you've been raised up with Christ, there's that other place this word is used, then keep seeking the things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is. That's where you really are. Christ is there, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things there, on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Why? Because you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ. In God. And when Christ, who is our life, is made manifest, when He's revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. So consider members of your earthly body as dead. Dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Don't be an idolater, Paul says. Don't keep living for the things of this temporal world. That's idolatry. It's because of these things the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. In them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put aside all anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech. Don't lie to one another. Put aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. See, you're like Christ. You have a new home. You have a new place. You've been raised up with Christ. If, if you've been raised up with Christ, that's the place where you seek. So what we value now is the light of heaven. How we speak now is in light of heaven. It's glory. What we follow now is in light of heaven. Why? Because we have a new disposition. Because we have a new environment. We've been made alive with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. All of this is because our union with Christ. Without that, we would not be aware of the true heaven. Without that, we wouldn't be citizens of the new heaven, but God made us alive together with Christ, and God raised us up with Christ. And Paul says, thirdly, God seated us with Him in the heavenly places. He seated us with Him. What is Paul saying? Well, I believe he's saying that in Christ we have been put at the highest place. We've been put at the highest place. In other words, there is no higher place than to be in Christ next to the Father. There is no higher place. The grammar here, interestingly enough, is saying that this is an already happened reality. These are all perfect tense. You have been raised up. You have been seated with Him. 
You have been made alive. In other words, it's something that took place in the past and it has ongoing realities for you into eternity's future. That means that as Christ is there, so are we. That's our position. Our position now, spiritually. That'll be our position when we leave this temporal place. We'll be with Him spiritually and personally, our changed into our glorious spiritual bodies. We will be and are now united with Christ. That means that that in Christ we have victory, right? In Christ we have security. In Christ we have privilege. In Christ we have finality. Why? Why would God do this for us? That's the question. Why would God do this for us? Why would God unify us with His Son? Why would God choose us to be part of His family? Why would God choose us and then bestow upon us all the blessings in the heavenly places? Why? Why are we unified with Christ at all? One reason... One reason only, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God do that? Because He wants all of His created reality, all of His creation, both heavenly and earthly, to see the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness. There's no other way his creation could see the expression of his gracious kindness toward wretches like us without God unifying us with Christ for all eternity. As we are with Christ right next to God the Father, as we are united with God the Son next to God the Father, we might know and see the fullness of His grace that was lavished upon us in and through the Son. That's what Paul's saying. As we are there unified with Jesus Christ and all that Christ is and all that Christ has been given, everything is watching and we are watching and all of us are lavishing in that and just praising God for the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us. God wants us as His people to be overwhelmed at His gracious mercy. There's no other way that we could be overwhelmed and see His gracious mercy in the blinding, gracious, kind light that it is in any other way than to have us unified with Christ. It is by His choosing us in Christ. That's the only way. Granting to us all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. And so He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ to the heavenlies and He seated us right next to Him so that we might see Him in full color and beauty through Christ. Now, in Christ, we hear God intimately. Why? Because we are one with Christ. 
Being in Christ, we have the Spirit who dwells in us and we hear God. We hear Him in His Word and we can know that we hear Him by following Him. Let me ask us a question. The first question is this, have you been made alive with Christ? That's the first question. Have you been made alive with Christ? God has opened your eyes Has He opened your eyes to Him? Do you have a new disposition? Do you have your eyes open to be born again? Have you been born again? If If not, then I beg with you, I plead with you, we plead with you, we pray to God for you that you would repent of your sins. That you would believe. We pray, God, open their eyes to see, make them alive. If you've been made alive, then you also have been raised up with Christ. You not only have a new life, you have a new environment in which you are to live. This world is not your home, therefore, live for home. Live for your new home. Live in a way that reflects where you live now, not where you once lived. We are a member of the kingdom of God and our responsibility is to Him. And So if we have been made alive, then we have been raised up with Christ and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies now. Therefore, We must spend time with God as He is near us. So do you commune with God? Do you commune with God in private prayer and study His Word so that you're pleasing to Him? Do you do that? Or do you just dabble with it, touch it here and now? that's who we are, then this place is not our home and we ought to have our affections on the things of heaven, not on this world. Paul says, we've been shown such great kindness from God. The surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us. Implication is you've been unified with Christ through the kindness of God. Does God deserve any less from you? Paul's going to get to the place for the Gentiles by basically saying to them, listen, don't hold this this with pride. And so Paul says, you've seen His glory. May His glory be seen in you. Unified with Christ. I think this is a principle we need to ponder on more and more when it comes to our salvation, our unification with Christ. Because this is what the entire book of Ephesians is about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the reality that in your heart, in your mind, through your Son, we are with you now. We are in Christ. We are alive because of Christ. We 
have ascended to the heavenly places with Christ, and we are seated next to you in that most high place as your children. Lord, we don't want to reflect anything less than that, our position, because to do anything less would be to deflect from who we're unified with. So thank you for the actual union with Christ, that reality in us that is a vital union that ought to produce in us the reality that shows in a living union with you, which brings about a unification with one another in the body. Lord, what a truth, what a principle. Help us to ponder these things, think through these things, be challenged by them in our heart, and live them out. In Christ's name we pray, amen.